Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited some tax experts and tax practitioners, including our ta- colleagues at Tax Banter, Web Martin Consulting and Tax Ed, to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and I'm your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Neil Jones, Director of Tax Banter. Neil, welcome. G'day Robin, how are you doing? I'm very well, how are you? Alright, I'm prepared to have a yak about company tax rates today, an issue I feel like I've been talking about for two years. We have been talking about it for two years. Yeah, and we've finally got, I suppose, a fair degree of certainty, um, having the Senate debated two pieces of company tax legislation uh, in uh, late August. So I think with that certainty now, we've got people who are going to be a little bit more sure of what their position is. Um, this has been a long process. Uh, the government formally announced a 10-year plan some time ago to, to change their company tax rate to be a bit more competitive globally, particularly with our near-Asian partners. So I think the objective of lowering the company tax rate is a good one. The government's managed to get the first three years of lowering the company tax rate for small to medium enterprises up to a turnover of $50 million. The balance of their seven-year plan for entities with a higher turnover has not been able to get through. So we've got clarity around the small under 50 million companies. We've got no, perhaps, uh, changes are now going to occur for companies with turnovers in excess of 50 million. So, you know, we've we've got certainty, companies can plan. um, But the other big change, and the one we want to focus on today, is about the eligibility for that lower company tax rate. Um, And I'll just say right up front, if you're not a base rate entity, you've got a 30% corporate tax rate. If you are a base rate entity and you meet the definition, you will pay the lower company tax rate. So that's a simple point to make, but once you delve into what is a base rate entity, to work out if you get the lower rate, that's where the work begins. It is, and I suppose the confusion all really started back from the tax office themselves that probably brought a lot of this on. Uh, We had a high court dispute involving the residency status of some foreign companies. the High Court made that decision ultimately in Bywater Investments. And I suppose the Commission has taken the High Court's decision and I think have pushed it one step further than the High Court actually stated, but that's only my view. But basically they were saying that uh, if you carry on business in Australia as a foreign entity, you are a tax resident, provided your central management control is also in Australia or you are controlled, your voting power is controlled by Australian shareholders. Now that issue about carrying on a business Tax Office put out a draft ruling after the High Court decision and had a little footnote in it that basically said something like this, if you're a company and you deploy your assets to make money for shareholders, you're effectively in business. Now a lot of people viewed that as an expansion of the concept of carrying on a business because if I have a factory, for example, I've deployed an asset to make rent for my shareholders. Commissioner's view, well, you're in business. Well, the wording they used in that footnote spoke about passive investment companies. And so people started latching onto that term and joining the dots saying, well, if a passive investment company is carrying on business in the way that you describe, that means they could qualify as a base rate entity. Yeah, as a a lower company tax rate. Now, the government sort of tried to seek to clarify that back on the 4th of July 2017 and saying we were never intending to lower the company tax rate for passive entities. So a lot of controversy, you know, a lot of water under the bridge since then. And so the government decided to change the eligibility for that lower company tax rate, not to someone who's in business, but to someone who has 
a not significant level of passive income, but as you and I discussed at the time, when the, the exposure draft was released, or the announcement was released, you could have up to 80% of your income coming from passive. So it's quite generous. They're very generous, and I, I thought they got it wrong. I thought, surely I'm mostly in business, then my passive would be probably a minority of my accessible income, at 20%. So the 80-20 rule, I thought they'd stuffed up, and that's my technical term for it. So I suppose when they said you can have up to 80% of passive without um, denying the lower company tax rate, I thought that was a bit of a strange position, but we'll go with it. It's, it's concessionary and uh, it's good for us, so we'll embrace it. So following the 4th of July announcement last year when the government said, right, we might need to clarify this, where do we get to after that? Well, the tax office amended that uh, central management control ruling by changing the footnote and adding the word relatively passive. As you mentioned, the footnote said passive income, or we said relatively passive. Um, then the government gave us some legislation that was introduced to Parliament in October, so around the 18th of October. It sat in the House for a while, it passed the House on the 8th of February. And Labor had made some comments about, do we really need to do this, is it necessary? But they ended up supporting, in fact, only three House of Reps members voted against the passage of the base rate entity bill. But then it sat in the Senate, it sat in the Senate, and sat in the Senate, and with the part, support of both parties, I thought they could have put, put this through straight away. And so we would have had clarity around our 2018 tax year, well and truly before the 30th of June or before the year ended. But it may be fair to say that we've had a lot of media attention and political attention on the big end of town tax cuts. And the energy's gone into looking at whether that policy should proceed, and I think this has just got caught up in that. Yeah, it probably got forgotten, but I, I would have thought, you know, get it out of the way, put it through, you know, second reading debate, third reading debate, gang, um, get Major Cosgrove to sign off and we've got the law. But it has, as you're aware, we've, we've only just passed it. Uh, and so that controversy is, you know, you've got a year that's finished and you still don't know what your company tax rate is. But we have that clarification now. So, you know, passed in the uh, Senate on the 23rd of August, um, Royal Assented on the 31st of August. So at least we've now got a true picture of what the law is. And so I think what we need to have a chat about now is really what that base rate entity definition is, so that, as I said earlier, you know, if you are a base rate entity, you pay the lower company tax rate. If you're not, you're paying 30 cents in a dollar. Perhaps something to point out to our listeners is that when practitioners were last pumping out their tax returns for companies, it was the 2017 return. And we're still under the SBE rules. We had a $10 million turnover threshold and life was relatively straightforward. But we've skipped a step. The law did actually change a year ago from the 1st of July 17 to bring in the base rate entity concept, but it was still modelled on the SBE concept of carrying on a business and turnover, although the turnover threshold did move up to 25 million. But now with this latest round of amendments, we jump over that entirely, and our base rate entity definition goes back to 1 July 17 with the new definition. Correct. So we've superseded the definition that we've never used in practice. Uh, pr pretty much, that's right. You know, we've jumped a step, as you say. But uh, you know, the ambiguity, I suppose, that was caused by the tax office pronouncements of what they viewed to be a business, not only in uh, that ruling on central management control, which was finalised earlier this year, um, TR5 of 2018, but then the Commissioner brought out a specific interpretation, 2017 D7, which is what it means to be in business for the purposes of the Rates Act. But given now that's no longer relevant going forward because carrying on a business will not be a criteria in the definition of base rate entity. But this does present an interesting issue. 
I agree nearly completely that we've got a ruling that was all designed to clarify what is carrying on a business for the purposes of the base rate entity definition. And that's now been replaced with this passive income test. But what the government seems to have overlooked is that the meaning of carrying on a business is still embedded in the aggregated turnover test. So to just uh, point out how the, the law actually works now, you will be a base rate entity if you meet two conditions. One, your base rate entity passive income, which we'll go into shortly, must be no more than 80% of your assessable income in the income year that you're looking to test. Further, the second condition, you need to have an aggregated turnover of less than 25 million in that same income year. Now, aggregated turnover is, by definition, ordinary income derived in the ordinary course of carrying on a business. So where does that leave us? We've got a ruling that now would seem to be irrelevant for base rate entity purposes, but in fact is still embedded in the second test being the turnover test. Correct, and being an aggregated test, if we were referring to the provisions of 328 on what aggregated turnover is, you know, the ordinary income and the ordinary course of business of you, the taxpayer, your affiliates and your connected entities. So that definition does rely on this issue of the ordinary income and the ordinary course of your business. So I suppose the Commissioner's views on what a business is are still going to be highly relevant, uh, maybe sort of indirectly to determine whether you're a base rate entity, but as it's part of the calculation of turnover. Well, why don't we work our way through the components of passive income, because this is the new concept which people have to kind of get their heads around. Really starting point is, and I'd be building an Excel spreadsheet to do this, I'm not sure that software is going to be coping with this too well. So I'd start off with a single cell, what is your accessible income for the year? And that's just one figure, that's easy. Then we're going to have to set up and seven... That's, sorry, sorry. that's to interrupt you there. That's the gross assessable income. Gross assessable, correct. So we're not building expenses into this. And I should add, we're not grouping. So there are grouping rules that do apply for the turnover test. There are no grouping rules that apply for the passive income correct. test. So after you've done your single cell with your assessable income, I'd be setting up seven further cells for the seven categories of base rate entity passive income that we need to total up and then work out if the total of those seven cells exceeds 80% of our assessable income. And that'll be a, a formula we work through. So we'll kick off with the first one, company dividends. Yeah, dividends, um, take the example of a holding company, for example. So, okay, we don't need to worry about whether it's a business or not, um, turnover less than 25 million. But to determine its passive income, you think normal sort of layman's language, dividends, French interest royalties, those things are passive, you know. You've got, you own a share, you're deriving a benefit from it. So it's almost you know, coming from the ownership of an asset. We would often refer to that as passive. But a holding company has deployed assets to make money for its shareholders and uh, passive income dividends in the definition they put in the law will be passive unless they are non-portfolio dividends. So let's, de let's define that for everyone. Well, 317 of the old Act, the 36 Act, in our CFC provisions, um, you know, where we have define associates and we have other legacy provisions, it says a company owns more than 10% of another company. So non-portfolio dividend will be a dividend paid by a company to another company. That will not be passive. So if you think about the classic subsidiary holding situation, even though the holding company only receives dividends, it will not fail the passive income test. In other words, they will not be passive and therefore 100% of its income, even though it be dividends, will not fail the 80% passive income test. One way of looking at this, and it's a little simplistic, but it gives people an idea of how this can work. 
It's not as straightforward as simply public versus private company dividends. But as a general rule, you'd be hard-pressed to have uh, more than 10% or 10% or more of shares in a public company. So generally, most of your public company dividends being received by a company would be of a passive nature. Whereas if it's a private company dividend, usually the opposite would be true. That's probably a fairly generalisation, but I think it mostly holds true. Uh, Mm. So your privately owned structures, you're going to have more than 10% of another company. Usually 100% subsidiaries. Which means those sorts of dividends would not be passive and therefore wouldn't count towards throwing you over that 80% threshold. Correct, but the problem is going to be where we've got trust in our structures. So a lot of small to medium enterprises will have trust in their structures. And a common structuring technique has always been to trade in a company, but the shareholder being a discretionary trust. So, you know, your shares flow out to your trust and then they're distributed in accordance with the discretion of the trustee. Often down to a corporate beneficiary. Often back to another company to tax, or keep the tax rate at 30 cents in a dollar. Now, the Commissioner is taking the technical view of that definition of non-portfolio dividend. I think it was open to debate with an example in the EM, uh, accompanying the base rate entity bill, that maybe the Treasury's intention was that trust could also derive non-portfolio dividends. But clearly the tax office, in their view, that is not possible. And in some recent guidance uh, that the ATO has put on their website, they are firmly of the view that a non-portfolio dividend can only ever be derived by a corporate entity. Neil, I'll share with the the listeners, I've had extensive discussions with the ATO and Treasury about that exact issue. And Treasury was adamant that you had a flow-through through a trust. So a dividend paid from a company through a trust out to a corporate beneficiary would keep its character all the way through. Whereas I disagreed, I spoke to the tax office and suggested that a a company-to-company dividend was the only one that could be treated as non-portfolio. And as soon as a trust is the shareholder or a trustee, then you're going to be going back to a passive dividend. And that position is reflected in their latest guidance. Yes, and I think with the law passing now, that's clearly the way the ATO is going to interpret it. So if Treasury had intended that a dividend um, from a greater than 10% ownership in a company received by a trust would retain that trading character coming out of the company and not be a a passive dividend, they'll need to make some legislative reforms because I think the government, even though that may have been their intention, it's not what the technicality of the law provides for. So I think you're right, you know, 317 is pretty clear, only a company can have a non-portfolio dividend. Tax office is taking that legalistic approach. All right, the second one is an easy one, franking credits that relate to those dividends. Yeah, so if your dividends are passive, the franking credits attached are also passive. And if your dividends are not passive because they're non-portfolio dividends? It's not passive. The franking credit gross up that you include is also not passive. So that's your number two item. Number three, non-share dividends. Now, people won't come across these very often. Yes, that's right. Under our debt equity borderline issues of 974, you can have something that is equity but not shares. Uh, equally, you can have shares that are not equity. So it's a really strange sort of uh, tautology, if you like, and almost like an oxymoron. But non-share equity, the recipients receive distributions, there will be basically a return on equity, in other words, a dividend. So the non-share dividends will also be passive under the base rate entity passive income definition. But interestingly, the franken credits that we just spoke of at number two they don't include the franking credits attached to a non-share dividend in the passive income. They only include the non-share dividend itself. Yeah, and uh, I suppose that if you... Most likely, you don't even know you've got non-share equity. Um, you know, if you do, 
have non-share equity, it's probably because the tax office has taken a view on a 974, uh, and therefore any distributions you may have paid out are probably unlikely to have been recognised as a dividend and, and franking credits attached. So maybe that's why they've left that out of the passive income, or it's a complete oversight. It could be. Number four. This is going to raise some interesting commercial issues. I'm just going to group them together um, uh, to begin with. Interest, royalties and rent, all considered passive. So let's break that down. Interest income. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, again, you've deployed some money, you've either made a loan, um, you've got some form of financial accommodation, um, and you've made that money out, you're receiving a return on it, it's passive. But we should note that they have carved out interest that the big banks and financial institutions well, receive. Think about that business of a bank, what do they do? Well, they lend money, that's their business. So it's not really a return on a passive asset, it's a return on an active asset. You know, that's what they do, they're a money lender. Royalties raises really interesting questions because, look, on a very simplistic view, you could say, yes, a royalty is passive, but it's going to get into the detail of what is a royalty. And things like license fees. So if you're a computer software developer and you license your computer software, the use of it or the copyright, you may uh, fall foul of these rules because if it is a royalty for the use of the copyright, that will be a royalty. If it is a license fee for the use of the software and you can't change the underlying code of that software, then it won't be a royalty. So there could be fully trading businesses that employ dozens or hundreds of people who may be considered uh, deriving passive income due to the nature of their licence fees. And like often with royalties, there's a you know, strange world we live in. Uh, royalties in deriving the ordinary course of a business um, of earning money from your use of your intellectual property or your other assets, you know, could be trading, could regarded as trading income. So royalty can be assessed under the ordinary concepts provision, but we've also got a statutory definition of royalty which includes the right to use, um, obviously, you know, industrial equipment, um, know-how, all sorts of things. And then either, every one of our double tax agreements will have a definition of a royalty within them. So royalty is not a plain vanilla concept. You know, it's pretty wide-reaching. Uh, wide um, but for this purpose, to determine whether you're going to have a lower company tax rate or not, it's part of your passive income. The biggest one I've had discussions with is the rents. Absolutely. And uh, people who are in the business of renting out properties, you know, they're in business. They should get a lower company tax rate, provided they make the turnover, but the passive income test now will say that rent is rent and therefore passive, even though you might be in the business of renting out properties. Now the ATO has confirmed that rent is confined to what we'd call exclusive possession of physical premises with a landlord-tenant relationship. So I'm comfortable that your hotels, your motels, plant and equipment, motor vehicle hire, temporary fencing, and Neil, when I trot over to Perth and do sessions there, I get asked about the leasing of crayfish pots. Yeah, big. Yeah, a lot of super funds own cray pots. Yeah, absolutely. So is that rent? Now, the ATO said, no, it's not. It's got to be physical premises without exclusive possession. So it's got to knock out all the equipment hire, et cetera, as being just regular business Think income. Those sort of businesses, you know, Harry the Hirer, um, Kenner's plant equipment hire. It's budget. It's sales. It's, it's not rent, it's sales. Yep. So I guess the point in all this is the more interest, the more royalties, and the more rent you've got, the more likely you're going to be pushing over the 80% threshold. Yeah, and again, some of those uh, questions we get, you know, the bucket company that's received a trust distribution and has converted it to a IF7A loan, you know, it's all it's getting is interest. Uh, so therefore, you know, it's going to fail the passive income test. It's not going to get you 27.5% or get you 30%. 
So that was number four on our list. Now, number five, I will just mention and then we'll move on to the next one, gains on qualifying security. So that's not going to come up too often for people. Uh, still, a, still a little around for financial bodies, but yeah, Div 16, qualifying securities. Um, yep. Whether it's being subject to Div 230. Um, it's passive. It's passive. Yeah. So number six on our list is net capital gains. So again, it's not going to matter what type of asset it is. It's a capital gain. It's yep. passive. Again, you know, the... Uh, Use of assets in a business uh, of a capital nature, whether it be your factory, um, your, your office premises, you know, you've moved to a bigger factory, you're going to make a gain on the disposal, uh, the net capital gain will be treated as passive. Fortunately, as you remember, we when it came out as a draft, it had capital gain, uh, not net capital gain. Um, which so would have been... Would have had a capital gain greater than your accessible income, which would have been passive at 110%. Very problematic. <laughs> so net capital gains, thank goodness. And the last one, number seven, is arguably the most complicated because it's about your trust and partnership distributions. Yeah, the flow through treatment coming through other entities. So what the way this works is you'll look at the first six items. So anything that was passive as a, a vanilla company dividend, your franking credits, your interest, your rent, your capital gains, if that's received by a trust or by a partnership, then it keeps that character as it flows out at this last point. So that means when a company receives a trust distribution or a partnership distribution, it's got to get the makeup of that distribution from the, the distributor to work out how much of the, the distribution is passive. So that component breakdown is going to be really difficult. And that's, uh, you're right, in the past, as a beneficiary of a trust you, or a partner in a partnership, you got a distribution beauty. The main thing you wanted to know as a beneficiary of a trust, was there any franking credits attached? But other than that, you probably weren't really keen. I mean, we did break up. You know, trust elements into primary production, non-primary production, frank dividends, non-frank. So there was always that little bit of a breakup when you were a beneficiary and what you had to put on your tax return. But not according to this current definition. Not this definition. So there will be, perhaps I would suggest, some extra labels, perhaps in your trust and partnership areas. I have suggested that to the tax office. The issue is for the current law, which goes back to 1 July 17, there's nothing in the 18 tax returns. No, but I think in the future we might break that up a bit more. Whether it be just an amalgamation of your base rate passive income flowing through that entity or whether they want to actually identify the components into the seven we've talked about. And bear in mind that what makes up passive income in an income year determines whether you pass the 80% test, which determines whether you get the lower tax rate. That's the first point. The second point is you repeat the whole exercise all over again, but using your prior year numbers instead, and that determines your franking rate. And that's going to be the difficulty for 2018. So if you've had companies pay dividends to their shareholders in 2018, they need to know what their elements were in the 2017 year, which they may or may not have captured, particularly flowing out of a trust or a partnership. Now, franking becomes almost a whole exercise in itself, doesn't it? We can't just rely on that 30% anymore. No, the, uh, as, as we sort of discussed, um, the franking rate, you'll have to look into the prior year. So that's going to cause some extra burdens on record-keeping practices, um, identifying elements, particularly where it's indirect through an entity. So the franking rate will be driven by last year's. So we make three assumptions, effectively, what the law's telling us to do. I assume my turnover is the same as last year. I assume my gross accessible is the same as last year, and I assume my passive is the same proportion as it was last year. So here we are in September, we want to pay a dividend. I don't know what my tax rate will be this year yet because I don't know where I'm going to land for my current year's turnover. Um, will be 50 million, I know tax banners going okay, but I don't think we're going that okay. 
Um, but you would have to then ignore what you're doing this year. To give you certainty to know what you can frank, the governor's decided you look back. And I suppose that does provide that certainty in the tax system. I've had a lot of accountants say to me, you know, Robin, we've never have turned over more than $8 million a year. We're not going to go over $50 million. So we know that we're going to be below that threshold. But the law doesn't say it that way. No. It says until the year's ended, you don't know your tax rate. So you don't know your franking rate. So use last year's figures. And that's prescribed. It is. It's the legislative definition. So your corporate tax rate for imputation purposes is driven by those three assumptions. In other words, it does give you certainty. You could go over. So you're going to be paying a 30% rate this year, but only able to frank the 27.5. Which will lose some frank, trapped franking credits sitting there. Well, they'll sit there. Um, they're not lost. They're just unable to be utilised at the moment. So until you either derive some non-tax profits um, or you get a bit creative. Remember, the definition of dividend under corpse law is a little bit different than tax. Um, and conversely, it could go the other way. You could be paying tax at 27.5 this year, but required to frank at 30 because last year you might have failed the passive income well, test. not required to frank. I just picked up your, your maximum, maximum franking rate. Yeah. Correct. Remember, yes. you can attach any amount of franking credits you like to your distributions, but there is a maximum benefit to the shareholders. I mean, theoretically, you can put more than 30%. Mm. It's just that the benefit to the shareholders will be capped at 30%. Mind you, some companies might welcome that because a lot of them are seeking to frank at 30% so they can pass out some of the historic credits from many years ago. And that's right. I mean, that's why they, they, you know, but it's not a choice. And I'll make that point very clearly. You don't choose your tax rate or your imputation rate. It is a prescribed legislative definition. I can't choose to frank at 30 because I want to. Yes. I think it's worth pointing out too that there is a new label in the 2018 tax return. So when you now look at the, uh, the various labels around label F1, F2, if one that you'd be familiar with, which talks about are you an SBE and you still complete that if that is the case. But F2 is now the label that drives your tax rate in the calculation statement. Yes. So if you are a base rate entity, meaning you are less than 25 million in the 17-18 year and you don't have passive income that's more than 80% of your assessable, then you are a base rate entity. So you tick yep. F2. Yep. And that'll drive the tax liability for that year. So maybe just to uh, point out some of the ATO guidance that we've received, because there are now three draft rulings on the subject. Well, and the tax office is trying to be helpful, so you've got to give them a pat on the back for that. Absolutely. So they are trying, and they, they, as we mentioned in a previous act, they have been timely in the release of their guidance and assistance. So the Law Companion Ruling D7, coming out just after the passage through the Senate, um, and passed on Wednesday, tax office document Friday, that's pretty good. And the purpose of that document is to explain what is base rate entity passive income. Yes, yes. It goes through the technical definitions and how the tax office are interpreting. Remember, a law companion ruling is effectively the ATO's explanatory material. You know, it's like an EM. So that's that's been um, helpful. Uh, it gives the reasons behind the tax office's view of what, how we define things like royalties, uh, rents, uh, and as we mentioned earlier, the non-portfolio dividend and the controversy perhaps around that. So tax office is trying to be helpful. So another document they've released in the context of these rules is a practical compliance guideline, 2018 D5. So unless you've done something untoward and have taken maybe a, an untenable position in your definition of whether you're eligible for the tax rate, the Commissioner's not going to deploy resources to have a look going backwards. Basically he's going to say, look, if you tried your best, um, maybe you made a mistake, but that's okay. Uh, I'm not going to provide resources to it, but with the dividends, he's also provided an easy out. Basically, if you've ended up franking a distribution incorrectly, 
there's a technical way to get your distribution statement amended, but you've got to go to the tax man, it's laborious, it's uncomfortable, it's, it's, wheel, wheel, you know, it's wieldy. So the tax man is giving you a concession just to write to your shareholders and re-correct, effectively restate what the attached franking credit will be. So that's a, that's a good thing to do too. And it's worth reminding everyone that we've still got the draft ruling, 2017 D7, on the meaning of carrying on a business. And it would be interesting to see what the look of that final ruling is. Yeah, again, the heading might change, as we said, for the purpose of the Rates Act. So they might have to sunset it, you know, up to 30 June 17, this is relevant but not relevant going forward, or they broaden the tenure of that ruling and say, generally, this is what we view to be carrying on a business. And it could cover like, small business entities as well. Yeah, a bit like 97.11 is sort of the, the litmus test of ruling of when you're carrying on a business. Does he basically say this is the replacement of TR 1997 uh, also a couple of ATO fact sheets which are well worth having a read of. So for those of you that aren't familiar with quick codes, a QC code is a five-digit code. It's in the bottom right corner of every ATO webpage. And if you just plug this into your internet browser, you'll find a link to it. So one code is QC48880. That's 48880. And the other ATO document is QC54063. That's 54063. Mm. And, and a quick shortcut to the web page. So I think it'll be interesting. We've got the law enacted, which is great. Um, now comes the implementation and the interpretation yeah, angles. Again, we've got the, you know, legal definitions. The, these are not choices that you can make. So, you know, you follow the law, you apply the law. Terrific. Thanks again for your time, Neil. No worries, Rob. It's good to talk about something that with a little degree of certainty now rather than speculation. It is nice. So thanks for listening to this episode of TaxYak. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, let us know what you think or provide some feedback, topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter. You can also email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au and you can find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.